Welcome. If you're a woman who has a sense that there's more out there for you, you're in the right place. I'm Whitney Baker, host of the Electric Ideas podcast. Somewhere along the line of working kids, life carried on, but I lost track of my truth. I'm on a reflective journey, and that's what this podcast is all about. Each week, I interview a woman who is lighting her own path and offering others hope. Before our conversation ends, we'll share a reflective question for you to explore. Sometimes all we need is a jolt, a fresh idea, an aha moment that connects us to a sense of possibility. This, my friends, is what I call an electric idea. Welcome back to Electric Ideas. Today's guest is Angela Foster. Angela is a nutritionist, health and performance coach, and host of the top-rated podcast, High Performance Health. As a former partner in a large law firm, Angela is no stranger to the demands of long working hours in a high-pressure environment. Angela left the world of corporate law after a serious illness in 2014 and used integrative health practices, including biohacking, to rebuild her physical and mental health. Through her coaching programs and online membership called the Female Biohacker Collective, Angela educates and inspires women to become CEO of their own health. Welcome to the show, Angela. It's so nice to have you here. Thank you, Whitney. It's so lovely to be here. I know that your own background has really informed your wellness journey and where you are today. So I wanted to start there. Tell us about kind of what you went through. Yeah, so great question. I mean, my whole journey actually began, I guess, looking back as a teenager, but I didn't know it at that point. You know, I started having pretty much as soon as my menstrual cycle began, there were problems with it. But it was sort of glossed over. In those days, no one really looked into it. My GP, you know, within the first year of me starting my menstrual cycle, prescribed the birth control pill. So I was put on that by the age of 15. Uh, I had absolutely no idea at that point, you know, how that affects the growing brain, how it can predispose you to things like depression later in life. And so I took that until I was uh, studying, reading law at university. And it occurred to me that I had never really had, I'd had a handful of periods. I should maybe come off and check things out. And I came off it for a year and found that I had absolutely no periods. I saw a gynecologist who basically said, because of your bone density, you should go back on the pill and, you know, just consider it later when you want to have a start a family. So I did that, but it was sort of lurking in the back of my mind. And it was in my late 20s. I was married. Uh, My husband and I, I was looking at going partnership in the law firm. And my husband and I were also talking about starting a family. I was thinking, well, how can can I ever get pregnant if I don't have a menstrual cycle, right? This is I've only had withdrawal base from the pill. And so I came off the pill and went to see a medical doctor who basically said, we're not really interested unless you've tried to have a baby, so come back. So we paid in the UK, that's on the sort of healthcare system. So we paid and went privately and they ran some bloods and some tests and discovered that I had PCOS. They were like, right, it's simple, you've got PCOS. And so initially I was prescribed medication to try and help me ovulate, but I had a really big cyst on one of my ovaries. And they were sort of monitoring it. And to be honest, all I ended up with was cystic acne. Nothing really happened until one day I came out of a negotiation, really struggling to walk. And so I then had to have sort of urgent scans and things. They thought the ovary might be twisting. They couldn't understand why I'd been prescribed this medication that actually made you, yes, a little bit more likely to ovulate, but also more likely to produce cysts. And so I was prescribed metformin for insulin resistance because of the PCOS, more medication, and uh, I couldn't take that. I felt terrible on it. I had really bad gastric dis- distress. I was, I was taken into hospital for urgent surgery. And they discovered I had rampant endometriosis and another chocolate cyst on the other ovary. 
So I had all of this removed and I was basically told, you know, the next six months is your best chance at having a baby because it will regrow. And I was going for partnership at the time. So I was like, well, do you know what? We'll just try for both. And fortunately for me, I ended up pregnant within the eight months that I was doing the partnership track. So there I was now, nine months later, brand new baby and um, only a month into partnership on maternity leave. And I had, I ended up having my children close together because of the gynecological problems. So I had three kids in four years. But what came with that was three bouts of postnatal depression. And I think that the years that I'd worked as a lawyer, you know, working through the night, long hours, weekends, had really set the stage for the adrenal dysfunction I had. But also things like birth control from a young age, the PCOS had predisposed me to depression. And I was really, really struggling. And by the time my youngest daughter got to the age of, of two years old, I was just in this battling place. I'd have, like, created this, effectively this prison in my mind where I just wanted to turn my head off. I couldn't cope with the depression. I was on a ton of medication to control bipolar episodes. And I just wanted an out. But I thought, well, how can I take my own life and leave my kids and my husband without a mother and a wife? And I just was just caught. And then I was rushed to the hospital again. I had pneumonia, but they thought I had a possible lung cancer. And the scan revealed that it was actually viral and bacterial pneumonia. And I was immediately admitted. I was neutropenic and really fighting for my life. And that was just a very profound moment. It's almost like I'd, I'd fallen so deep and so hard. And it really sparked in me. I actually strangely felt this sense of peace in hospital. You know, I'd been trying to run away from myself. And then there I was, right? Where are you? Gonna, it's like John Kabat-Zinn says, wherever you go, there you are. And here I was in hospital with myself. And so I, but I felt this profound sense of peace, almost, I think, a lucidity from the fevers I've been having. And I was finally okay with being me. And I just was like, I've got to get out there. I've got to be a mum to my kids. I've got to see them co-op. It was like a wake-up call. And interestingly, within 48 hours of me making that decision, my blood work changed. I was responding to the intravenous antibiotics. But that was a restart for me. And that's when I finally decided I'm going to close the door on law. I'm going to completely retrain and try and understand what the hell has been going on with my health and actually rebuild my mind and body. And that's kind of where it all began. Wow, that's a journey. And it sounds like a lot of pain and overwhelm and so many things going on. So you decided to shut the door on your partnership in the law work. But what else did you start tapping into at that time to enable your start of recovery? Yeah. So, I mean, there was so much that I had to do, right? Because I was physically burnt out. My immune system was really shot. I was mentally really struggling and I hadn't focused at all on spiritual health. I'd seen so many different clinical psychotherapists as part of the treatment protocol. But I think what makes it different is when you suddenly have a purpose and you make a decision. And I made a decision that I wasn't going to think about suicide. And right. I had to find a way of getting well because here I was, you know, in hospital, there was that very real possibility of me not making it because I didn't just have bacterial pneumonia that antibiotics could deal with. I had viral pneumonia as well. And I was neutropenic. And so once I made that mental switch, it was like, right, how can I get back on track and rebuild my brain and body? So I started with a functional medicine doctor. I had lots of like, you know, mindfulness work, meditation, counseling, clinical psychology and psychiatry, and really started reading everything I could. And then I started taking courses in nutrition, integrative nutrition, health coaching, nutritional therapy, 
even personal training I qualified because I wanted to understand the exercise component. I knew that that could have an effect with endorphins and increasing my mind. And it started really for me. It was it was my personal journey of like, how am I going to get really well? And then I started to work with clients because I got all these qualifications. And from there, it became a bigger mission. I realized that there are so many women that struggle and it might be postpartum or it might be as they're coming up to menopause. But at various points in their life, you know, our hormones really dictate how we feel. And mine had just been brushed under the carpet for so many years. And, you know, I was totally unaware that PCOS and birth control, both of those things predispose you to depression. And, you know, that that depression had gone on so long, we couldn't call it postpartum anymore. And it, and it was transcending into sort of bipolar episodes. So I just, it was, how can I rebuild myself? And it's like Joe Dispenza says, which was a great book. It's one of the books on my journey, you know, break the habit of being yourself. And that's what I had to do. And there was so much self-loathing when you're that depressed, you know, to get to the point of suicide, you really have a lot of self-loathing. And so I had to really work on that identity and, and rebuild everything really from scratch. I think this is so powerful because now, you know, you're in a totally different place. You coach high achieving women from all over the world across multiple industries. And not only have you seen it all, you've experienced it all. I mean, you've been through so much mind, body, spirit, and I think it's a testament to how you can speak to women today. Thank you. Absolutely. So I want to bring us to the present because I know that one of the things you talk about the most right now is biohacking. And I think like some of the other terms and that we use right now, I wish it was called something different because it just sounds a little scary, right? Mm. <laughs> and a little bit masculine as well, right? Don't you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm glad I didn't. I think I intuitively felt that, but I haven't put words to it. But yes, it just energetically, it just seems like aggressive or something. But I I just want to start by having you explain what biohacking is for people that maybe aren't familiar at all with that concept yet. It really is about influencing your internal and external environment for health optimization. So work literally hacking into your biology and looking at the internal and the out external inputs and outputs that really affect and influence the way that your genetic expression is playing out, the way that you're feeling, your energy, your thoughts and everything. So it really biohacking for me, and I think people have different definitions, is really mind-body-spirit optimization. It's all of them. But it's about using, there is a scientific approach, and I use a lot of data with people, a lot of tracking with things like, you know, the Aura Ring, for example, that I wear, use various different devices, you know, like things like BrainTap, for example, for creating meditative states and red light therapy devices. But you can do this without any investment. You can do this literally using the things that nature has given us that are literally free to get started. But it really is about understanding that you are bio-individual. There's no one exactly like you and how you can begin to optimize the expression of your genes and your biology for health and longevity. I definitely want to come back. I'm, I'm making a mental note because I want to talk a little bit about devices later. But okay, so now that we have a baseline on understand biohacking, well, it's bio-individual, as you say. I'm curious. I think there's a lot of women who perhaps aren't as deep into what you were when you were balancing that very big hormonal shift of having in your childbearing years, your career growth time. But I think that there's a lot of women who are listening who probably do have a sense of 
lack of energy, maybe brain fog, maybe ongoing fatigue, where it doesn't seem like something they necessarily want to go to their doctor for, but they just, they can't quite seem to get it right. So what are your top two or three biohacking tips that women who fall into this category might be able to explore on their own? So for energy and brain fog, I think that's particularly common around perimenopause, right? And there's some reasons for that where we're experiencing a significant hormonal disruption, but also the brain is reorganizing itself with estrogen, you know, progesterone is kind of dropping first. And then later we get a significant drop off in estrogen. But I think with energy, we also have to look at mitochondria. So really, that is the foundation of our energy. And if we have healthy mitochondria and we have good density in terms of the number of mitochondria we have, our energy is going to be very different to somebody who has less mitochondria and damaged mitochondria. And I think it's very difficult because there's so many things environmentally in terms of toxins and things that we're eating that are causing that effect and contributing to things like brain fog. And I would say that at its core, any chronic disease that we're looking at, whether that is heart disease, diabetes, cancer, anything that we're suffering with, there are usually two things that are coming into play that we need to fix. And one of those is blood sugar dysregulation. And the second one is inflammation in the body. And if we can target those two areas, we're A, going to protect ourselves against many of these diseases and protect our longevity. We're also going to feel very, very different in terms of our energy levels. Let's talk about that more. So how does blood sugar dysregulation work for kind of your average healthy woman? So one of the things, are we looking specifically, for example, women in their forties, for example, or sure. 50s That's, or yeah. yeah, let's try that middle. Yeah. Middle Mid, of midlife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think what happens is, and, and this is unfortunate is that in your forties, we start to see inflammation go up. We start to see uh, drop in insulin sensitivity. So now we're not quite as good about moving the glucose into the cells because the body is naturally becoming insulin less sensitive. If we haven't been focusing on healthy habits and behaviors, like increasing muscle mass along the way, we will have been losing muscle each decade. And that actually impacts. Muscle is an organ of longevity. It's a metabolic organ. It's the only real organ we can grow. And if we're not focusing on our muscle mass, we're going to have reduced insulin sensitivity. So muscles are a fantastic reservoir for taking up what's known as glycogen, which is a long-term store of glucose before it gets stored into body fat. There's really only two places we can store it, and that is the liver and our muscle tissue. So we need, as perimenopausal women in particular, to really be focusing on strength training a few times a week, also for bone density. We need to be focusing on our sleep. That will as well help to improve blood sugar regulation because a really poor night's sleep has been shown to make you as insulin desensitized as a a type 2 diabetic just one night. And also a lack of sleep can cause inflammation. But then we have this sort of perfect storm where actually many women are really struggling to sleep because they're in perimenopause and they're experiencing things like hot flashes. So as we begin to bring these things under control, you get more energy, less food cravings, which is another thing that people really, really struggle with. If your blood sugar is kind of spiking and going up and down, we want to create the window between where your blood sugar, the range to kind of flatten that curve, because the more spikes we see, the more insulin is released, the harder time we have controlling our energy, but also the harder time we have controlling our body weight. And that's another thing that happens is often women will see, you know, where's this body fat come from that I never had? Like, why suddenly am I getting weight on my hips and my tummy that wasn't there before? Or I've got it and now I just can't seem to shift it. 
And again, this can in part be down to the fact that we are just not regulating our blood sugar and our stress levels particularly well. And I think it's compounded by the fact that during those years, cortisol naturally goes up as well. So we need to be better about our sleep hygiene. We need to apply more stress management principles to help ourselves. And that's really when I talk about my shift protocol, which is basically sleep hormones, insights, which is gathering the data, and then fuel, which is there's a number of different facets to fuel, not just nutrition. And then the T is training the mind and body. When you use that shift protocol, it gives you a framework to really make these changes, to introduce these healthy and habit, healthy habits and behaviors. And when you do that, you're going to have more balanced hormones, higher energy, uh, less stress. All right. That's a lot to take in. So let's go a little bit deeper into some of that. So first of all, you were talking about strength training and a question I've had recently, because I've strength trained in different ways in my life. And does it have to be, it does, does body weight count as strength training? Body weight counts. Okay. Because your body actually can be really heavy. So if you're trying to do a pull up, a lot of women will struggle to pull their body up unassisted, just one pull up. So that would be an example of something that is actually very difficult and challenging to do with body weight. Trying to do push-ups as a woman, multiple push-ups can also be pretty challenging, right? So you may, some women may need to start on knees, some women may be able to perform full push-ups, but eventually go to their knees. As you start to build that strength, you're going to need to create more of a stimulus And in perimenopause in particular, and as you transition through menopause, so this is in that sort of five-year lead up and when you're making the transition, and the average age is about 51, but you can look to your own mother to see roughly when you're going to go through it. It's fairly genetic in that term. So in that period, you need to provide more stimulus if you can. And so, yes, yoga and things like that, they are intense in terms of the the number of movements you're doing and how much you're using your body. But if you really want to develop better insulin sensitivity, I would always advise using an external form of resistance. And the reason for that is that as women, estrogen is a significant trigger for muscle mass, for gaining muscle. And as we transition through menopause, we are seeing a big drop off in estrogen. In the early stages, we're seeing lots of fluctuations, right? It's all over the place. And that's why we can feel quite funky. And in the beginning, it's probably going, we're probably experiencing estrogen dominance because actually progesterone is going down first. But as we get closer and closer to menopause, we're losing a lot of this estrogen. And therefore, in terms of our fitness training, we're going to have to provide a stronger stimulus if we want to maintain strong bones and a good body composition. We also need to eat more protein at that stage to support the muscle. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. I just know that I I'm all for finding ways of moving your body that are scientifically proven, but also feel good to you and that you are sustainable. And a lot of women I think are open to strength training, but maybe they don't want to do like a, what they consider a bodybuilder routine. I don't know. Everyone has their own ideas and perceptions. So I think it's just helpful to know that it could be a, a class where that involves weights of some sort, but it also could be achieved through just weight bearing exercises as well. Is that, I just want to make sure. Yeah, it could be, and it could be done slowly. You can actually get a lot of benefits because remember it's time under tension. So if you were actually just to do some body weight exercises at home, but you really control that movement slowly 
and you squat down and come back up in a full range very slowly, body weight will be a very strong stimulus. Similarly, if you're doing a very, very long, slow push-up, which often the moves in yoga are very slow and they're holding and you're doing static poses, you'll get there. You can also like jump on things, right? You can do skipping. You can provide the stimulus other ways. You can do sprinting. For example, if you're out for a run, maybe you just throw in a couple of sprints. It doesn't have to be specifically kind of bodybuilder style weight training. What I would caution people against is I, th- I see a lot of women who, when they feel like they're not getting results, their immediate conclusion is, I'm going to have to really up the ante here. So maybe they were going and they were doing, say, a body pump class at the gym. And now they're thinking, well, I only need to include two classes a day. That isn't necessary. I think what happens is, we can end up doing quite a lot of vigorous exercise, but it isn't high intensity. So it's it's about thinking about your training in terms of polarization. So loads of work at zone two. Go out hiking, really enjoy it. Do Pilates classes, yoga, things like that. But then sometimes you just need to create a little bit more stimulus. And that can be through jumping, sprinting, skipping, you know, jump rope. Uh, heavier weights or really slowing down and getting that stimulus that time under tension because you just need to create some polarity in the training and so less is often more keeping the sessions shorter so you're not driving cortisol up and then making sure that you're really refueling post-workout with protein and carbs to that can actually dampen that cortisol response for sort of up to 48 hours. But you're right, you should make it fun because if it isn't fun, you're not going to commit to it. What I'm explaining here is if you really want to idealize your health and get to the best that you can be in terms of health optimization, then you would include some resistance work two or three times a week. I appreciate that because sometimes people are just like, hey, I'm happy and I'm moving and I feel good and I am comfortable. So, you know, bless you. But I do think it's really common for women, especially around the 40 age to be like, oh gosh, nothing feels like it's working the same anymore. So I appreciate just that clear direction on on balancing and having a little bit of a challenge sometimes, but not overdoing it. Yeah, exactly. And getting the recovery. And remember, if you haven't been training, it's going to be easier to create that stimulus. Much easier because you probably can create it with adult body weight. Whereas if you've been a gym goer all your life, then what I would caution against is if you're doing something like a class, a body pump class, where you're doing continual movements, right? If you think about it, if that weight has got to be lifted over your head as well as squatted with, you probably aren't getting enough stimulus on the squat because it's got to be light enough to move it over your head. Did you see what I mean? Mm. Whereas actually breaking down those movements and slowing it down and just thinking, right, I'm going to do a squat separately. And then I'm going to do something that's overhead separately. You probably get a much better, stronger stimulus. Okay, good to know. The second point that you talked about in terms of for this cohort of women that we're kind of focusing in on that might be having this fog or fatigue, you mentioned inflammation. And with that, you also kind of immediately jumped to sleep. So what's the, what's the link between inflammation and sleep? So when we are sleeping, we're doing a lot of repair work. So it's really, really important. And even melatonin, for example, that helps us to stay asleep is an antioxidant hormone. So it's important that we're really good with our sleep hygiene. And if we're getting enough deep restorative sleep and enough REM sleep, which also helps with memory formation and emotional regulation, we're going to be helping to heal our bodies and renew and repair those cells, stimulate things like autophagy, and also importantly, cleansing the brain. Because when we are asleep, we have something known as the glymphatic system is 10 times more active at night. 
So this is where the cerebral spinal fluid comes up and effectively cleanses the brain of things like tau proteins and amyloid plaque, which people will have heard of, heard of because they're associated with things like dementia. So we want to really give ourselves that sleep opportunity of around seven to eight hours if we can and use things like blue light blocking glasses in the evening to help optimize that sleep. Don't expose ourselves to too much blue light and to have a kind of, to bookend your day effectively, journal, you know, write down what it is you need to do for tomorrow. So it's kind of off your head, have a kind of one hour where you detox away from screens and social media and relax to really encourage sleep. And obviously there are supplements that can help as well, particularly if you're having any hormonal symptoms, but that will help to lower inflammation. The other thing that's really critical here is just to get the seed oils out of your diet if you are having them. So things like canola oil, we call it rapeseed oil in the UK, sunflower oil, soils, things like that, they can be quite pro-inflammatory because the way that they're processed often oxidizes those oils and they have hexanes and things that are used for chemical extraction processes. And so really we want to stick to healthy fats that are better tolerated, particularly if we're heating them. So things like avocado oil, extra virgin organic olive oil, coconut oil, grass-fed butter or ghee, those are going to be better and help to lower inflammation. And if we're doing that and we're coupling that with good blood glucose control, that will go a long way to keeping inflammation at bay. Okay. So I understand that about sleep. What What's your sleep routine? What do you do to get ready for, for that blissful shut eye? Yeah. So I have a digital detox before bed. I put everything away so that I'm not on my phone. I think that would be the biggest thing that I've noticed has made a difference and I will put on a pair of blue light blocking glasses in the evening. I realize for people listening to this, they're like, oh my God, if I watch Netflix with blue blockers on, it turns the whole screen red, which it does change the color. I would say that you, when you start to see the difference in your sleep, you won't mind quite so much because it really does help you to produce more melatonin naturally. And a lot of people are taking that exogenously to kind of compensate. But actually, if you can help your body produce more, that'll make a difference. The other thing is I will take, often I'll take liposomal glutathione before bed because that helps with like liver detoxification. And then I'll also take some magnesium before bed. That really helps with sleep, but it'll also encourage, depending on the type you're taking, uh, I use a blend, you'll um, encourage a bowel movement in the morning. But for women who are then really struggling, like some of the things I've found to help on top are adaptogenic mushrooms or medicinal mushrooms. So reishi and chaga combined with magnesium works super well. If you're having things like hot flushes, ashwagandha can be amazing. Specifically, you can use like ashwagandha and then some shisandra as well, which during the day can give you some energy and ashwagandha in the late afternoon and evening. Ashwagandha also helps you control blood sugar better as well. So there are things that you can do. But the other thing is that your how well you sleep tonight begins with what you did in the morning. So I always encourage people to get outside early and get access to sunlight because that's actually going to help to optimize the rhythm of cortisol and melatonin. So if you imagine they have an inverse relationship, when we wake up in the morning, we want cortisol to be rising because that's what gets us up and going and gets us out of bed. But when cortisol is rising, melatonin is going down. And so in the evening, we want to create the opposite. We want our stress hormones to be reducing us to feel really more relaxed. Things like a warm bath, some lavender essential oils, Epsom salts all help to really create a relaxing environment. And then that will encourage the release of more melatonin. The other thing to be aware of is we've all had that, you know, the child that won't go to sleep that just gets that second wind. 
That is because... I have one. <laughs> you have one. <laughs> I have one as well. <laughs> well, interestingly, because melatonin is an antioxidant hormone, if it starts to be produced and we don't go to bed quite soon after, this will be interpreted by the body as energy because it is antioxidant in nature. So that's why, you know, you can have that thing where you're going to a party and you think oh, I'm just so tired. I really don't feel like going. I wish I didn't have to go out tonight. And then all of a sudden, boom, 10.30, you're like, it was such a great night. I should never have stayed till 3 a.m., but I was having such fun. The second wind kicked in. This is really to do with that rhythm. And so making sure that you can get to bed ideally by 10.30, unless you're a night owl, that actually has been shown to support adrenal function as well, which again is important in perimenopause because when we're going through this period of our life, as I mentioned in the beginning, we're losing a lot of progesterone. We need our adrenals to pick up that progesterone production because if we're not ovulating every month, we're not producing much progesterone. And so if we're highly stressed, they're not going to pick that up. It's just going to be converted into cortisol. So that's another reason for really, really focusing on your sleep, looking after yourself, like coming from a place of self-love is really important. I kind of have three principles for women that I would say is embrace your femininity, right? Understand we're not, as Stacey Sims says, we're not small men. So work with your hormonal cycle and optimize around that. Embrace abundance. And by that, I mean like an abundance of food that is rich in micronutrients. I don't think the female body responds particularly well. And the scientific literature is beginning to back this up to a place of lack. You know, long fasting periods, not the greatest for women. Ketogenic, extreme ketogenic diets, for example, I've seen women trigger early menopause. Think of it as an abundance of nutrients that you want to put into your body and you can optimize that around your menstrual cycle. And also light, hydration, all really important as well, the right breathing. And then come for the third one would be come from a place of self-love because so many of us, like we've done like six rounds in the boxing ring with ourselves by midday, right? From the minute we wake <laughs> up in the mirror and we look at ourselves, it's like come from a place of self-love. And so those will be the key things because when you do that, your hormones are going to play a much more beautiful symphony in terms of that orchestra than if you are constantly trying to, a lot of people think of biohacking is quite masculine and they watch a lot of male influences and they go, right, I need to do a three day water only fast and daily 18 to 20 hour fast. And I need to do ultra endurance running and I need to do loads of high intensity workouts. And I just, the, the female body doesn't really respond particularly well to that. Thank you for, thank you for bringing this up because yeah, I, I do feel culturally like some of the people who I followed who are very into biohacking talk a lot about the fasting. And again, I, I know that we both know that it's really unique to anybody's individual body, what's going to serve them. But I'm glad that you are discerning a little bit about what in general, a woman's body might respond to negatively or positively. So can you tell us for those that I'm sure everyone's probably heard of intermittent fasting by now, but some people don't even know. It seems like a, a foreign thing that they haven't really explored. So can you just give us a baseline on what the concept is and then tell us if somebody was interested in trying it as a woman in this kind of mid-range cohort, what would be a reasonable and healthy place to begin? Sure. So fasting is basically not eating, yeah? And it's founded in many spiritual practices. 
and it can help you connect with yourself. It can help to enhance a process known as autophagy in the body, which is where you have a kind of cellular clean out and you recycle components of cells and effectively rebuild. If you're eating all the time, it's very difficult for your body to do that effectively. And so, you know, on the one hand, we have people that are eating all the time. They're eating and, you know, they're snacking right up until the time they go to bed. They're drinking any kind of drinks that still contain calories. And then they wake up in the morning and the first thing they do is put coffee with milk or something that contains calories in their mouth. So they haven't really got much of a fasting window. So fasting is when you're not eating, but it's about really optimizing that period for you. And there will be days when you can fast for a bit longer and days when it's not going to be necessarily as good. So if we take women with a menstrual cycle, for example, actually, it's probably counterproductive to be doing longer fasts in the luteal phase, which is after ovulation. So in that last bit leading up to your period, your basal metabolic rate is about 10 to 20 percent faster you actually have a natural need for more calories, you're more likely to crave things, and we want to optimize progesterone production here. So at this point in the month, if we don't want estrogen dominance, fasting and telling our body that it's a place of lack and that this would not be a good time to bring a baby into the world isn't the greatest of messages. Whereas in the early phase of the month, maybe you can go a bit longer. But I would always say to women, start with 12 hours. Everybody should be doing a 12-hour fast, right? Even kids do it. If you look at very young children, We have a fantastic routine for them that we don't do for ourselves. You know, they eat around 5 or 6 p.m. We give them a nice warm bath. We don't let them have screens. We read them a story, give them a cuddle and get them ready for bed. That's really, we're almost kind of replicating that as adults. We don't have to eat that early. But then they won't eat the next day until 7. Now, so many kids are just naturally doing 14 hours, young children, without even thinking about it. And I would say about 12 to 14 hours is about optimal for most women. However, when you start to go longer, particularly if you you are doing any kind of training. So if you are exercising more than like 150 plus minutes a week, then you really should be making sure you're not fasting too much because you're stimulating autophagy anyway through exercise. So you don't necessarily need to be stimulating it through fasting on top. What you need to do is be aiding that recovery and giving the female body what it needs. So yes, you can play around with longer fasts periodically. I think that can work really well. And if you know, sometimes you want to do a 24 hour fast, for example, but I wouldn't pick the luteal phase. Once you've transitioned through menopause, your hormone levels are much lower. Now you're more like a man. And actually men benefit really, really well from a 16-8 daily fast. So they fast for 16 hours and then they eat within that eight hour window. And that can be a great way to really optimize for body composition. But that's something that I would encourage people to look at once they fully transition through menopause on a daily basis. I think when we're going through perimenopause and we really do want to optimize for progesterone production, just be careful and look at your menstrual cycle and kind of optimize around it. That's helpful. Thank you. So for some women who are listening and maybe they're kind of lacking in the motivation category and they're closer to who you were before your huge transformation, what advice would you have for them to just get started on their own journey without becoming overwhelmed? I would start with the basics. I would start with looking, I'd start by taking a really honest assessment of where you are and thinking, how do I feel? So like, where have I got a problem? Like, do I feel like my sleep is terrible every night and I just wake up with really low energy? Well, then just pick off sleep and think, I'm going to do some of the things we've talked about today and really begin to optimize my sleep. It's, it's the reason I have it as the foundation of the shift protocol, because when you target sleep, everything becomes easier and you develop more energy to approach the other things. But let's say you think your sleep is really good, but actually you're struggling with something else. 
I would just bring some clarity and awareness to what that is and be curious about it and then start tracking it. I don't think we should ever attack or criticize ourselves. We've got to have acceptance as to where we are now, but then look at it and go, where do I want to go? How would I like to feel? And understand that anything you do in life, there is going to be a price to pay, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch. So if you say, I want to have the ultimate female physique, and for you, you think that is 16% body fat, but you're currently 28, that's going to be a big effort, right, that you've got to put in, and there's the price you've got to pay. But maybe, and then you'll have to put more steps in place to do it, but maybe that isn't what you truly want. Maybe you're actually like, do you know what, I just want to reduce a little bit of body fat, be able to wear some of the clothes I used to be able to wear, feel and look good and feel confident, well, then develop a nutritional program and work with someone to help you do that that is congruent with your goal. Because I think we need to be in alignment or we just don't stay with our goals. And I think that's probably the saddest thing is when people set something that's unrealistic, you don't have to do what everyone else is doing. Figure out where you are, accept where you are, and then look at it and go, how would I like to feel and where would I like to go? And what's the key priority for me? And then maybe I fix that, then I'll move something else. It might be you've got to fix your gut health first. It could be anything, but fix one thing and go really, really slowly with it. You know, it's like if you're going to build an exercise routine, then say to yourself, I'm just going to do go out for a walk for 10 minutes every day. Start there. And then when you've done that, then build. And if you bolt it onto an existing habit, is going to be so much easier. So you need to set yourself up for success. So what what do I want to do and why do I want it? The why is the key thing. You'll only ever do it if you understand the why. Get the environment right. So put your clothes out the night before, for example, if you're going to exercise. Make sure the people around you are supportive of what you're going to do. And if not, get, call a friend who's going to come and walk by your house and say, hey, let's go for that walk. And then just follow through to do it and understand that you won't feel motivated every day. What motivates you is the overall goal of where you're going. So keep your eye on the destination, but understand that motivation is created through action. So once you start getting outside walking, then it starts to feel nice and you're, you're going to continue doing it and congratulate yourself for the days that you do this when you don't feel like it. Like those are wins and celebrate them every single day because you did it, girl, right? You need to, to be your own best friend. That's, that's how I would recommend getting started. That's great. I know that that will inspire some people. And I like the idea of just giving ourselves permission to start with one thing, maybe like the most pressing thing in a way. And some people might not think of sleep as the first thing when they're building a health routine, but it's a great reminder that that's so foundational. So exactly. I I didn't build everything at the same time, right? The first thing I had to do was get my mind right. But when I found that purpose and I connected with it, then I was like, right, now we can start to put in place the things. And and one of the first things I did was energy. It was energy nutrition, looking at what am I putting into my body? How can I feel more energized? That made things easier than to put the other steps in place. Right. And I've, I've found that once you, it, it, it always happens this way is that once you lean into and feel really good about one area health wise, other areas become easier too. Definitely. So, and it becomes positively addictive. That's the thing, yeah, right? It's motivating. Yeah. All right. Well, I know we're coming up against time, but I did real quickly want to circle back because there is a kind of underlying tech component to some of these conversations with the biohacking. And I'm not someone who's like rushing out to get the next gadget every time, but I, I did hear someone in the community say, just to focus on tracking what you're hacking. And I thought that kind of stuck with me of like, okay, so we focused a lot on sleep. 
So I'm wondering if we were curious about, cause there is a part of me that's like, I, I sleep pretty well. I've got pretty good rhythms. I don't have major issues usually there, but I'm curious. I don't track it in any way. So maybe I don't, maybe I could be sleeping better and I don't even know it. I'm just curious what, if we were going to explore using some data to drive our daily habits, what's something we can do? So if you wanted to measure, so a very simple analysis would be to start tracking how you feel, right? And what you did in the evening and how that made you feel the next day. That's very subjective, but it still gives you data to work with if you're consistent. Then you could use a free app, right? Like Sleep Cycle for example, just put your phone to airplane though, so that you're not getting the radiation from the phone. And that will give you, you know, it's not going to be really accurate, but it's still your data that's comparing against yourself night after night, tell you if you're snoring, tell you how long you've been asleep, but it might not be accurate in terms of how long you've been in deep sleep, right? But it will show you wake ups. From there, you think about something like this aura ring that I'm wearing, that is a great device for tracking your sleep. The whoop strap is another one, the bio strap, and they will give you more data looking at because it's looking at your blood volume. And so it will give you data as to how long you're spending in deep sleep. It's still not as accurate as a lab, but it's more accurate. It'll tell you how much REM sleep you've had. And you can start to then optimize those figures. It also interestingly gives you your heart rate variability. So the heart is not designed to beat like a metronome. So if you think like the average person has a heart beating of 60 beats per minute, You wouldn't expect that to be one beat per second. There would be interbeat rhythm that was going on. And so generally, if the heart is trying to create that rhythmic order, it's because it senses disorder elsewhere in the body. When we're relaxed and our parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous systems are communicating well together, we'll actually see significant interbeat variability. And you can look at that and that's a really good metric as to how well recovered you are. If your resting heart rate is high for the first few hours when you go to bed, and that heart rate variability is depressed. That either means that you've been pushing yourself too much, you haven't had enough time for relaxation, or maybe you've eaten something that really genuinely doesn't agree with you're intolerant to and your body's struggling with it. It could be a variety of things. It could be alcohol. But it gives you some data to work with so you can begin to understand and effectively become your own biohacker of like, how are the things that I'm doing and the decisions I'm making affect me? And then how do I feel the following morning checking in with yourself? And you'll get things like a readiness score so you can see. But it's an independent metric to give you that check and balance and for you to begin to optimize things around what you'll see. That's eye-opening. Thank you. If I, I might get that for myself or I'm thinking I might give it to my partner for Father's Day. <laughs> He's the one who's kicking and up in the night. So thank you for clarifying that. All right. I know we're up on time. I always end with the same question because Electric Ideas is about, you know, reflecting and empowering. I'm wondering what's one question you think women should be asking themselves more? I think they should be asking themselves, how can I look after myself better because I think that when you look after yourself better everyone benefits and I think that we are so conditioned as women naturally to put everyone else first we can feel last on the list and I think if you can just find five minutes even in your day 10 minutes to look after yourself truly look after yourself whether that is going and having a coffee out in the sunshine in the morning whether it's taking a few minutes for some breath work, whether it's meeting a friend, whatever it is, something that really fills your cup, you're going to be so much better because you can't pour when it's empty. So that would be the thing I would say. Beautiful. Thank you, Angela. I know people are going to be excited to follow you and learn more. So where can we find you? 
So probably the most uh, platform I'm most active on is Instagram, which is Angela S. Foster. I have a free Facebook group uh, called Female Biohacker, funnily enough, where people can come in and I do live Q&As there every week. And then if people want to get like, if they want to go through that shift protocol and answer some questions and get a free personalized report on themselves to see where they are and get scores on their sleep, their hormones, et cetera, they just go to yourtotalhealthcheck.com and they can complete a free online questionnaire and get a personalized report from me. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that free resource. We'll make sure to capture it in the show notes as well. Sure. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. My pleasure. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you're looking for more, feel free to connect with me on Instagram at, at Whitney Woman. And if you enjoyed the show, I invite you to support me by leaving a review or sharing it with a friend. Hope you have an inspired day.